This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And this will be our... Is that our second recording of 2017? I think so, yeah. It is, yes. Uh, but this will be sort of a mixed episode where we'll take a quick look at 2017 that was and also look at the private life of Sherlock Holmes. But uh, we were talking before we started recording that um, this has perhaps not been uh, a vintage year, as you were saying, for Master Cinema. Could you perhaps air your thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess. And I, I just have to be careful here. Um, mm. Firstly, we are extremely We're privileged. Yes, we get we get screeners, which yes. is a really nice touch um, because obviously that's you know you do save money and it, obviously it's, you can get them well in advance of when they hit the shops and you get you know it's, it's a wonderful, brilliant thing that I'm extremely grateful for. Mm. But that being said, um, I found myself with a lot of the films this year really struggling to become that really that excited about them there was nothing that really came out that made me go oh wow i've been waiting for that to come out for ages mm. there was a couple of i mean a man for all seasons um is a wonderful film that I, mm. I, I know it came out um, on one of those twilight time limited to 2000 jobbies that they have over in america um and i managed to get hold of a copy of that and i was really pleased that this is this has now come out on blu-ray in the uk and it's a wonderful um, transfer and all that but I did find myself watching a lot of these titles thinking I don't really consider these to be really that worthy mm. of Masters of Cinema or indeed especially the newer films that were coming out I didn't think to myself well actually you know I can see why this would make the Masters of Cinema collection especially in the case of Creepy oh, yes. which was great fun for about an hour and as, as I, I think I was messaging you at the time and you were like oh, oh wait for that second hour and I was mm-hmm. like oh, Oh yeah, um, but yeah, I mean there was a few there was a few in there things like um, the Drunken Master. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Um, I laughed a lot at that actually. I haven't seen that film for ages, and it was just such ridiculous good fun. Um, West Front, nineteen eighteen, and Commander Shaft. That was that would have been my pick for the year. Were I to um, were I to have like a, a release of the year, and there was a von Sternberg film, um, the Saga of Anatan, which was another really quite interesting film. Um, really. I really enjoyed that. But the most, I was pretty indifferent about them, I have to say. Mm. Um, there was some nice re-releases, uh, the Buster Keaton stuff. That, yeah. was, you know, that, was, that, was, that was great. But um, for the most part, I was pretty neither here or there with them, really, I have to say. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's strange. And I, I, I go, every Monday, I go to FOP in Manchester to have a look at the releases. And, see, you know, and I, I try and really do make an effort to buy films now uh, that, that come out Cause I, you know, because I, I just think it's important to support these labels. I, I think they, they serve a good a good purpose. And I, I you know I'm, we keep hearing about the death of physical media. Mm. Um, I think that's very much uh, a, a complete myth. It seems to be in rude health. And when I would go along there, and you see obviously there's new releases from Criterion and Arrow and the like. And I, I would look at those releases and I would look at the Masters of Cinema releases that were coming out as well. And I, I was sort of thinking these other labels are putting out a lot more interesting films than they are at the moment. Um, and, and it, yeah, it's a, I don't know what their sales are like. I don't know, you know what, what becomes the process for acquiring films is whether it's become a lot harder and anything like that. But it just seems to me that some of the other boutique labels are getting the better releases. 
Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, I'm looking at the like a list of releases for 2016, and you had a film like Rocco and His Brothers. You have Man with a Movie Camera. Um, you also have two big box sets with the Murnau box set and the Buster Keaton box set. Um, and uh, last of all, you had Pass of Glory, which came out. And then in 2017, mm. I think most of them were... You can find interest, interesting bits and pieces mostly, but I'm, I'm with you in that I'm still struggling to work up an enthusiasm for most of the films, um, yeah. especially some of the uh, modern films, as you were saying, uh, The Morning Forest and Harmonium and uh, Creepy, especially. Uh, um, it, it, it's, it's the, sorry. No, yeah. these films that, um, especially with that new label that Eureka started up, I can't really... Um, I can't really understand their criteria for which goes where, basically. Totally, yeah, because, I mean, you had the Walter Hill film, Hard Times, which has mm. got a Masters of Cinema release, and I watched that, and I, I would say that was probably the best transfer that I saw mm-hmm. um, of, of all the releases. It looked, it looked fantastic, but I'm watching this film. I'd never heard of it before, I have to be brutally honest with you. I, I, you know, it, it wasn't something that was kind of on my radar, but they're putting that out on Master Cinema and then they're releasing Marty, Marty, sorry, the Ernest Borgheim film mm. out on Eureka Classics. Well, yeah, if ever there's a film that should go in the Master Cinema collection, Marty mm-hmm. would be it. it. It seems far more deserving of being in the collection than a film like Hard Times. I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't quite work out what the, you know, what one goes where and why. Yeah. It, it, it seems a bit strange to me. I, I, don't, I don't quite get it. Like, why have like labels? Why, why have so many different strands and competing? Essentially, competing against each other. I, I don't know. It seems a bit odd to me. Indeed, um, I have to be honest that since starting work in November full time, there hasn't been enough time to basically have, or sort of both enough time and enthusiasm to watch some of the films that have been coming through. Um, so like the new Keaton box set, the, the Lubitsch box set, uh, some of those old German films that I really do want to see. Uh, and I've heard they were favorites of yours, but I know they're kind of lying there uh, where I I can either watch those or I can go in and watch something that I know will entice me more, like a a good next Netflix show or something that I feel will be more gratifying at least. And also it has to be said that um, I can't occupy the TV and the living room at all times uh, with watching these old German films. I have to take consideration to my girlfriend. So, uh, yes, yes. The, I mean, I, I, I don't have... Uh, that luxury. I don't live with my girlfriend, so I'm pretty much the uh, the curator of what I see. But I found myself this year. It, TV is where it's at at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, it's there's, and yeah, you, you can watch a 50 minute episode of a TV series of a two hour German silent film that will have a terrible um, score to it, mm-hmm. and you sort of think, I don't know, watch, watch another episode of Luke Cage, yeah. you know, which is more there and then, which is more appealing, but. Um, it, yeah, it, it's it's a tough one. It's, there's so much good content out there at the moment. Um, I, I do think for me, like TV is undergoing this massive renaissance, and it's hard to you have to sort of remind yourself 
to, to watch films. Mm-hmm. As it were. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to go to the cinema more this year. That's my sort of New Year's resolution is to go more and, you know, after work and on a Saturday morning and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's because I want to watch more films at the cinema. But it's also it's kind of a thing like, you know, you can't if you, sometimes if the old kind of watching box sets, you, you can easily just sit there for six hours in the same place, mm. just watching episode after episode after episode. And I'm like, no, I don't want to get into that habit again. Cause mm. <laughs> You know, it's, it's a little life drainer sometimes. <laughs> and I think some of uh, our perhaps more uh, uh, or less encouraging feelings towards Master Cinema titles this year is perhaps that we, we don't know exactly what the criteria is. That basically mm. makes us, or I have, uh, my confidence in the sort of titles they have released has diminished uh, a little bit this year, I have to be honest. Uh, so picking up an unknown title becomes more of a um uh it's more of a challenge for me yeah for sure and i'm just looking at you know i mean i was looking at um the upcoming arrow releases and my god i'm going to be skint for the next six months there's something <laughs> every week that i want uh, you know it's just some amazing stuff they've got coming out in studio now as well and like I said, when I mean, when I was, um, you know, in the BFI as well, are really knocking out the part. The, the new version of um, Wages of Fear is absolutely incredible, mm. and it's like they're titles that I'm really excited about. And yeah, like you say, I'm just not quite feeling that at the moment for Masters of Cinema. Mm. I'm, I'm looking forward to the new King Who film, Legend of the Mountain, uh, which is oh, coming yeah. out in March. Uh, yeah, and for sure, there's some, I mean, I've just received Michael through the post, which yes. I really, really like. Um, uh, yeah, like you said, and I mean, obviously we've had, as we can talk about, the private life of Sherlock Holmes, that was an interesting one, as we will get into. Mm. But there's definitely um, the Barefoot Contessa as well. Uh, that's another film that I'm really interested to see. So, yeah, this year, the, the slate for this year is pretty great you know from what i'm seeing so far these are films which i've definitely got an interest in and there's an early who i can't pronounce the guy early who who's Simeon or something who shall shin i think yes. he pronounced it yeah um don't know anything about him but that looks interesting you know yeah. and you have the old dark house like a, a classic hollywood horror film uh which also will be it's interesting how i feel like some of these films they are releasing this year have more of a um it's more of a distinct stamp on them. Yes, for sure. Yeah, um, I just think it's a shame. I mean, there's, the the thing is, I, there's there's loads of films out there which are just crying out for Blu-ray releases, yes. um, like some of you know the the early Visconti stuff. And uh, I guess you know for whatever reason, I don't know how hard it is to get hold of you know these old films. I don't know the process, how much it costs to get them, you know, spruced up and ready for Blu-ray. But there's a, there's so many films that are just crying out for blu-ray releases and i was chatting to someone the other day and he was like you know it'd be great if masters did not put out the keep on blu-ray and i thought yeah you know i can see why that would be i can see why you would have that in the collection it's a michael mann film you can do a bit of a you know obviously i think i think he's not very keen to release it but yeah there's films out there basically um you know certainly a lot of public domain ones which have had terrible releases on home home formats you know just awful color patterns and stuff and it just seems you know lots of the other studios seem to be getting in there very very quickly yeah okay so that'll about wrap up our 2017 discussion this year um oh by the way just out of interest yeah. in Nordic films anyway what was your favorite film of last year nordic films i uh, know uh, your no your favorite film sorry favorite film in um like oh, overall for massive cinema yeah, yeah. No, from just in general. In general, uh, like a cinema release. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you caught me on off guard here. Uh, let me uh, let me just check my letterbox. Okay. <laughs> That is usually where I like uh, letterbox is where I that's my where my movie memory is basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you can uh, talk about yours first, uh, and then I'll uh, see if I can find mine. Yeah, I went with uh, my. It was kind of a, almost a joint second, but I think um, "Call Me by Your Name" pipped it from Blade Runner. Hmm. Just. Um, I was pretty blown away by both those films. I think Call Me By Your Name was the one which I was just bad at. Having, it was the depths of winter in Manchester. It was freezing cold. And to go and watch a film just set in beautiful sunshine. Um, yeah, I completely got lost with that film. And Blade Runner 2049 as well. That was just an unexpected delight from beginning to end. Mm. Um, looking at my list now of films from 2017, um... I think it's, uh, I mean, Dunkirk was an amazing, like, cinematic experience. Uh, to For sure. see that on big screen with, um, like, amazing audio. Uh, and just a, a real a real treat to watch in the cinema with uh, yeah. such a good sound system. Um, but in terms of, like, being enveloped in a story, being caught up in, like, a universe, Blade Runner 2049, I would have to agree that... That, or in my case, that is probably my top film of 2017. I was, I'm a huge like Blade Runner fan, and I had pretty high expectations going in, but that one just uh, it met all my expectations and surpassed them in that it dared to do something else with it. Yeah, for sure. I think. I mean, I I'm conflicted because I actually think it's a better film than Blade Runner. Hmm. I mean, it certainly makes Blade Runner a better film. For it for being there for sure. I mean, it, it really complements Blade Runner. Hmm. Um, I was just sort of like, God, is it? Really, do I really think it's better than Blade Runner? Is it, um, you know, I, you don't want to sound like one of those, uh, you know, trying to be yeah, trying to be oh so hip and you know contradictory and what whatnot. But hmm. yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. I saw it on IMAX, and it was incredible because one of the, the things about it, I'm actually going to be talking about it on the 24 Framecast, is I had walkouts, and that amazed. Film? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there were. There was audible. You could tell people were just like, "What is this? This is why? Why are we an hour in and there hasn't been a massive fight? Mm. Why, why is this guy actually doing police?" And there was a, there was this couple sat next to me, and she said after an hour and fifteen minutes, she, she went, "Fuck it, should we just go?" And he went, "Yeah, I'm so bored." And, they, and, and this is what's amazing me. It was watching an IMAX, fifteen pounds a ticket, you know, and they just got up and left, and yeah. then that started. And I counted about six people walking out overall and i was just gobsmacked i was like am i am i missing something here is is it that bad that you yeah. cannot sit for an act to i mean but it, it, you could tell people just, just like oh well, yeah this is too much this is just isn't what what i what we need and it, it amazed me I, it's not a good it's not a good thing that that's happening as mm. well because that that you know it wasn't it hasn't made back its money and it studios take note of that type of thing <laughs> yeah they, they really do yeah, and cinema chains as well. You know, um, I, as I talked about on the Twenty Four Friends cast, I know somebody who works for a major cinema chain, and they could not wait to get Blade Runner off the bill because it was too long, and people weren't going to it, and they were literally chomping at the bit after ten days to get it out of the cinema, which is a pretty depressing state of affairs. Yeah, 
I mean, um, me and my girlfriend, we went with um, uh, uh, we went with another couple, and I think uh, the other girl she she didn't know what type of film she was walking into, and she was expecting some sort of Marvel film. I think mm-hmm. so. Uh, you can totally understand people who live in that in like our day and age of watching Marvel films, watching all these superhero films coming out and then something like Blade Runner, which actually demands concentration and is more about the, the atmosphere and the visuals. Mm. But I think perhaps comes across in the marketing uh, as more action oriented than it really yeah. is. For sure. Yeah. So. I mean, any film that has a, a sex scene between a hologram, a prostitute and a robot <laughs> Does our ultimate respect. And I, <laughs> when that scene was playing out, I, I, people were going, what? I, there's this woman in two rows and she went, what the fuck? And you can tell she's like, what, you know, what is this? What have I signed up for? And yeah. I'm standing there going, this is incredible. Yeah. I've never seen, I've genuinely never, I've, I've, never, I've seen some weird shit in my life. I've never seen <laughs> a prostitute, a hologram and a robot having sex. But it was still enough for me to go, wow, that's different and crazy and unique. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's 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 obviously we we are in the minority, sadly. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Um, on a bit of sad news, I, I read also today or yesterday that um, the composer Johan Johansson, which has collaborated with Denis Villeneuve, he passed away. Yes, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Um, and I, I saw him in concert this last year as oh. well in Manchester, which is so bizarre. I don't. Uh, yeah, nothing's come out about that one, has it? I don't know if it was. Yeah, you know, we don't know the causes or anything like that. But yeah. Absolute shame. I love his soundtrack for um, Theory of Everything. Yeah, uh, he did. He did do Arrival and Sicario. I'm right in thinking that, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, right. Which are I actually, both brilliant scores. So, yeah, and um, for sure, I actually had a, one of the most scariest experiences of my life. Was I have my soundtrack playlist wake me up on my Sonos system at home, and I one day got woken up by a, a piece from Arrival. You know that kind of big, awful crashing noise thing mm. and it was the most scariest thing. <laughs> be woken up like that traumatized me for about an hour it was absolutely hideous but yeah great composer just a real shame no, yeah, yeah terrible hmm. all right so let's get into the private life of Sherlock Holmes um this is actually a film that I I, I, I think I was aware of it before it came out um because uh, usually when you hear of Billy Wilder Mm, there are all these uh, 50s and 60s films that is from his golden era. But um, here in the latter half of the 60s and 70s, he was kind of struggling, um, giving out a few films that never really caught on and got any real critical acclaim. Um, but how do you, what were your kind of relationship with this film before it came out on Master Cinema? I've heard about it for ages. Mm. Um, but what put me off was, and it, it's, I was always told it was a comedy, like a straight-up comedy. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, I, I, I really like Sherlock Holmes films. Um, and, you know, the Basil Rathbone ones are, are amazing. I really like the Robert Downey Jr. ones, and that's probably not exactly uh, fashionable to say so. But um, I, I had avoided this for years because I thought it was an out-and-out comedy, and I thought I could see it being awful. Yeah. I, I just had it in my head it would be this sort of terrible kind of slapstick stuff and I do find now I mean I again controversial statement I don't like some like it hot it isn't funny at all I know I know I know I know and I just thought Billy Wilder comedy 
it didn't work. But The Apartment's one of my favourite yeah. films ever. That's um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Billy Wilder in general. It's just I just <laughs> thought, oh, you know, yeah, I, I'm not sure about this. And um, there's something as well. I mean, about there's a certain phase of 70s films. They do all sort of look the same. I watched Sidney Lumet's uh, Murdered on the Orient Express, and it's, they're, they're these soft. Yeah. Um, they, they, they really do. They, they show their age, basically. Yeah. And everything I'd seen from the private life of Sherlock Holmes seemed to indicate that it was a film that I wouldn't like. And I got a bit snobby about it. I was like, you know, you can't make a comedy out of Sherlock Holmes. You can't go down the full-blown <laughs> comedy route. Um, with, with Sherlock Holmes, it doesn't quite seem right. And yeah, this came through the post, the screener. I chucked it on. I had a glass of wine. It was fucking awful weather outside. Like I was actually worried the window was going to come in because of the rain. And it, I thought it's kind of quite good fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I, it was different, and it was very, very, very much a product of its time. Yeah. Was my overriding kind of emotion towards it. That's, that's interesting that you say product of your time because I kind of have the feeling that it was almost past its time or um, it felt like it was reminiscing back to the, the classic the classic Hollywood films in a time where we get the Hollywood renaissance and we have these um, more experimental films coming out of Italy, of France. Um, but perhaps, or even the offence, like that was four years later in in Britain, which is like far more edgy than this. This feels like something that is kin to, um, yeah, more of those sixties classic Hollywood films. Well, I can't imagine there would be that that this film would have Sherlock Holmes as a coke addict. Yeah. Because that the end, I mean, we'll get there. The end, I mean, you know, so making it so explicitly Mm. clear that he has a problem. I mean, he's injecting. It it is coke. It's not heroin. He's doing it. It's coke, isn't it? I think that he's. But it makes a big point out of the Mm. fact that he needs it. Thing right at the beginning, isn't it? You know, he's he's shooting up at the end, and and we'll get to the ending of this film because that is as dark as dark gets. Mm. Because I was sat there thinking, only in the nineteen seventies. I mean, this was made in 1977, it was the cusp of it, as it were, but it, it has, it's the, like you say, it has the big Hollywood side to it. It gets, I mean, you have like the ridiculous stuff on Loch Ness, yeah. and it has that kind of Dr. Doolittle almost type thing going on. But on the other side, I think it has the, that 70s kind of nihilism to it. Mm. There's, a, there's definitely a dark side to this film, which I don't think you would have got. If it was made five years earlier, this would be a balls-out, hoity-toity Disney-style film. It yeah. would be, you know, all, everything would be would be ramped up to a factor of ten. It would have been shot on seventy millimeter with a massive score. It isn't like that mm. at all. It's a far more downbeat affair, um, and it's it's the way in which they go with Sherlock Holmes. Because in if you go watch those Basil Rathbone films. He is this ultra confident. He's always got. He, he always knows what's going on. He's Basil Rathbone in that. He, he's always completely in command of himself. He commands every scene. You've got Watson, you know, bumbling around. Oh, Holmes, you know, how are we going to get out of this? And he'll suddenly go, right, we're going to do this, that, and that. And then he'll trick you, and he'll do all these things. 
that isn't the Sherlock Holmes of this at all. It's a far more angst-ridden take on Sherlock Holmes. He's a, he's a very different person, and he's got very he's got demons in this, and they're clearly it, it's it's going into the character in a, in a way that kind of that I I haven't seen anything like any of the I mean yeah I do watch at least Sherlock Holmes. Films. I have there's no Holmes like it up until this point, and I think that is a result of. They are trying to, I think what, what the attempt is, to try and repackage this character for modern audiences. And that's why you get this slightly darker side to him. You could also argue that, um, like Billy Wilder in this stage in his career, he does feel like he's he is an outsider himself, uh, it feels like. Like most of his films that were coming out, they weren't uh, very popular, they weren't... Um, gathering that critical acclaim and like what is he attempting to say with this type of Sherlock Holmes film I, I think you could draw some parallels with uh, the fact that they are both characters who are perhaps of a different time than what they are living in and perhaps struggling to find their place and struggling to find some sort of meaning with uh, with what they are doing uh, which is trying to become relevant again yeah that's, that's exactly it. I mean he yeah, goes through that phase doesn't he of I mean, all of his films have an edge to them. There's, you know, I mean, Sunset Boulevard, Christ. Yeah. You know, that's a dark film. It's a film about Hollywood, but it's, it's, it's just a dark film about Hollywood. You know, it's, it's not, you know, Hollywood when, it does, Hollywood, when it makes films about itself, loves to make films that are self-congratulating impact. That La La Land, for mm. example, is a film about Hollywood. And that's why people loved it. Because it's this look at, you know, oh, it kind of has a bit of a downer ending, spoiler alert, but... It's a film about that place, and that's why people love it. You know, he goes and makes Sunset Boulevard, and he's like, well, look what this industry's done to this woman. She, you know, turn her into a murderous psychopath. And you can get away with that for so long, but after that, you know, you, we kind of have like the sun like it hot, the apartment. He seems to kind of, I think, peak with the apartment. And then it's this, his films kind of, the, the, they, the, the gaps between them grow longer and longer. And I think the film before this was The Fortune Cookie, um, which, from what I understand, that's quite a dark comedy as well with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Mm. Um, wasn't a huge hit at all. And it, I, I would imagine if you're a director and then you've got people like, you don't forget whilst all this is going on, you've got like your Easy Riders coming out, you've got your Bonnie and Clyde's coming out. There's no point in him trying to do something like that. You have to stick to what you know to agree. Billy Wilder can't, I, I doubt, was going to fuck off with a motorbike and a 16-millimeter camera <laughs> yeah. and a drug. You know, you know, that, that's just, you, you can't fake being like that. You, that. If that's not who you are, you can't fake it. Mm. Billy Wilder is a classical Hollywood director, a subversive one for sure. But you've now, he's in a situation now coming up to the 70s where he has to compete with your Francis Ford Coppola's and the like and... Mm this fundamental huge shift that's going on in Hollywood. And what, what are you going to do? You're going to make a, a Sherlock Holmes feel like, you know, play it straight and straight down the line and make a kind of a very, very uh, strict retelling of that story. Or are you going to try and do something different to try and you know, re-energize yourself? Hopefully it'll be a hit. This was a tremendously expensive film at the time. I mean, we, it had a big, big budget. I think it was like $10 million, I think, it cost to make. I mean, it was a big risk. Mm. And it's, from a point of view, of, for a, I think it's an important historical document to look at his career and say, 
credit that is someone desperately trying well not desperately trying but trying to find relevancy in this new world and that i think is interpreted in the story hmm. because the actual story itself um yeah it's it's bleak this is a bleak story yeah and i also think just in terms of the the production and relevancy it was I think he was trying to do this as a roadshow picture where he wanted to shoot like four, I think he shot four different like short stories that were supposed to be part of the overall film. Um, yes, yeah. And then he cut, I think he, I think he got two stories and a flashback sequence uh, from Holmes in his uni days. Um, at either I couldn't quite figure out if was if it was the studio's insistence that um, the film was too long, or whether Wilder himself became like disenchanted with the film and wanted to uh, to cut it down. From what I understand, it was him who decided because I, I think that this was the age you know, where I think the whole roadshow thing. Doctor Doolittle was the one which I think had everyone sort of panicking because <clears throat> that was a ridiculously expensive film, mm. and people were just like, "This film is." utter shite um jack valente who um you know was kind of running hollywood at the time that like dr Doolittle was like his number one favorite film that was what he wanted hollywood to be making this family wholesome crap mm. basically and audiences weren't having any of it and i think half of that was down to the sort of you know this would be as a night out you're expecting to spend three hours at the cinema and that's what you know the private life of sherlock holmes if it was in that format would have gone in would have had you know intermissions and all that kind of crap and that just wasn't what people were doing and i think it was i think from what i understand it was wilder who sort of said right that's it we'll release it as is as it were mm. um let, let's talk about the the opening opening titles um yes i think that is probably the most impressive created sequence i've seen in the film uh it i, th- I really think they are really cleverly done uh sets up the story it helps us really like dive in back to back into doyle's world and really attempts to distinguish between what is quote-unquote the real homes versus the homes that is portrayed in uh, watson's stories um and showing homes um in the real world as slightly frustrated with the role he had to play in the public eye um And sadly, I feel like the film never really delves into that kind of aspect of myth-making and Holmes's troubles with it. But I really do, do feel that the film attempts to tell a larger story about being in the public eye and how you come to grips with it. It's very clever because this is the thing. When I was younger, I thought Sherlock Holmes was a real person. <laughs> and part of came from the fact, no, but part of that, you can go to his house in London, apparently. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, in, in my head, until you know, I was about like 13 or 14 or something like that, I found that he wasn't actually a, a real person. And I, I, I sort of thought he had this, you know, this sort of, he was this great detective and all that kind of stuff. I think I had, I think I had it in my head he solved the Jack the Ripper case as well, which would make a <laughs> great deal. Lazy. Kind of yeah. But, you know, and what the film does, it gives you, it, it's, you can imagine audiences at the time would have forgot about Sherlock Holmes. I can't imagine it was particularly fashionable. Yeah. Um, you know, and then he sort of, yeah, he, he, you know, I think the word's meta, isn't it? He sort of goes into it, right? What is this myth? You know, what do you know? What do we really know about Sherlock Holmes? Who was he? Who was yeah. this 
person. And he gives you all these like little teases, doesn't he? Like the the deer stalker hat, and yeah, you know, we see some of his kind of his his box of tricks and all that kind of thing. And it, yeah, it, it's like going it, it's it's redefining and re reimagining and exploring who is this person behind the story. Mm. Yeah, and and it's not a canon. This isn't like this film is as far as I'm, I'm concerned it's, I don't think it's like one of the Arthur Conan Doyle stories I think it's a completely new creation as it were and it, it it's interesting because it's like if it treats it like he is a real person mm-hmm. he, he, that he is this real yeah he, he did exist or this film myth that they've made around him over the years and it pulled it's interesting it's just a, a, an interesting way of exploring a character that you think that you know um yeah uh like holmes he um comes across as someone who uh as we've been talking about he he does come across as someone who's flawed incredibly flawed uh and just downbeaten and that's a far far cry away from the homes that we have come to expect in those uh, type of classic classic sherlock holmes films and one of the first things he does is shoot up yeah and Watson's like, oh yeah, God, you, you need that already. And he's like, no, no, you know, yeah, 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 I can handle it, I can handle it. And you're like, because I was watching, thinking, fucking hell, mm. <laughs> this is dark, you know. And the fact that he's, you know, he's injecting cocaine in him just to sort of give him this sort of buzz and this lift. It's you don't. It's like if in this new Han Solo film, if you find out he's an alcoholic, mm. <laughs> it's sort of like it pulls the rug on you through that. And you, it, 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 like I said, it sets it up for him not being perfect. Mm. because you're so used to him as this perfect calculated solver of crimes yeah and to see him like this it's very 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 strange it, it, it sort of it adds a little bit it adds a bit of tension to the film i think mm. i think that's where um, that's where it complicates things for me in my enjoyment of the film because on the one hand it sets up him as a flawed character as one who is sort of addicted to cocaine but except for these two scenes we never hear anything about cocaine throughout the film and i don't think there are any like exciting deductions that are made um the case with that missing husband it's quite like boringly solved uh, as a viewer you quite early on know that something is up and you keep like waiting for Holmes to catch up and Watson, he never does. But I, I, I don't think I, I never had any like exciting fun nor any like sort of satirical fun either. Uh, there's not many complications or dead ends or mysterious parts to confuse us or Holmes. Um, and it's I found it to be like a very mediocre detective story, uh, which yeah. wasn't very much fun, even though it has interesting parts to explain uh why he uh has become this flawed character but there i don't think they are really fleshed out or uh something that carries throughout the entire film i think it's a confused film Mm -hmm. is how i would describe it i think it's like you can imagine it being you can imagine it sounding from a pitch point of view very interesting you're going to go and do sherlock holmes we're going to bringing it up to date we're gonna create the character that's slightly different think about what they did with robert dowie jr or what robert dowie jr did to that character 
they made Sherlock Holmes into James Bond, yeah, basically, and they have that kind of incredibly flashy direction. But there's still loads to enjoy in those films. You feel you still feel like Holmes is cleverer than you. Mm-hmm. You feel like he's working at another level compared to you. Mm. And I mean, and and, and there's, there's some genuine moments in those films where you kind of go, oh, fucking hell, that's great, that. And it, it works for modern audiences because that's what we like to see. These, you know, we like action films. We like these kind of clever characters. With this, it's like they've gone, right, we'll strip everything down. We'll change the character. We will make him seem a lot more vulnerable than he is. We'll give him this dope problem. It's almost like that's enough. So we can say, here's Holmes. It's a bit different from how you remember it from being. But what they've forgotten to do is to make a truly engaging story mm. that makes that as you sit there. Because like you said, I wasn't sat there trying to work out the story. Mm. No. And there's always a scene. Yeah, there's always a scene in like Sherlock Holmes films where he goes undercover in disguise or something like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and you don't get, you don't have those kind of moments where you know, it kind of where you know, Watson's bumbling around. Watson's more like kind of trying to keep him straight on the straight and narrow because Watson's the foil, isn't he? You know, you always send Watson off to cause a diversion with his bumbling around, whilst Holmes goes and steals the letter from the person's pocket or something, and you don't have that playfulness with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's almost like, you know, the stuff Christopher Lee tips up and that's all kind of cool. But, you know, obviously Christopher Lee would have been Dracula then. That's how, you know, that's how people would have associated him. Mm. But I don't think they're doing an, enough interesting things narratively to warrant, to, to really engage you. Mm. I, I, and it's confu- the tone is very confused in this film. Because like I said, I thought it was a comedy. I thought it described as a comedy. I didn't find it particularly funny, mm. I have to say. That might just be because of my sort of, just how I am, you know what I mean? But... I would, I would agree. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, like, is it a comedy? No, I didn't. I don't, I don't think I laughed once throughout the film. Is it a crime? There's not much mystery going on. Is it a drama? I don't know. So, confusing film. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be. You, 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 if you're going to make a Sherlock Holmes film, you have to make a really interesting detective story. Mm-hmm. There's no point in doing it unless you're going to do that. But you sort of sat there thinking because that's what you've watched Sherlock Holmes films before isn't it you want to find out who did it you want to find out who the voice is behind the radio you want to find out who's pulling the strings and you sort of get this but it seems like an afterthought mm. um and, and it's a slight it's, it's just you know I know Billy Wilder wrote it and it 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 feels like it feels like a wasted opportunity to do something really interesting and it is an int- you know in the kind of the canon of Sherlock Holmes it's an interesting film but yeah, I was never sat there going, fucking hell, what's going to happen next? This is gripping, this. Mm. I, you know, I was just like, well, okay, um, we're at Loch Ness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, okay, yeah, fine, great. And, yeah, it didn't grab me like that, which I wanted it to. Yeah. Um, I think some parts of this uh, are interesting to discuss, like how they, how he portrays uh, women in, in this film. Um because one wants to use Sherlock to make like a perfect baby and the other one uses him to spy on this country. And Sherlock, he says early on that he doesn't really trust women and the movie, it never makes a real case that his viewpoint is wrong. And I feel like in most Wilder films, um, most of the women are either like shrews or temptresses or someone who's there to look good. Um, he, he has received quite a criticism of 
the women in his films and how they are uh, never really uh, like a, a good character, basically. It, it's lazy. Yeah, I mean uh, the the Jennifer Genevieve Page character Gabrielle, she's like a wonderfully wicked creature. She comes across as that, and she has like um, a blend of uh, like sexual power and uh, misleading to overwhelm Holmes's better reasoning. And I I don't find her weak or cruel, and she does her job like remarkably well. Her job is for her country and. She's no different than Mycroft, for for oh. instance. But there's something there's something off about uh, his portrayal of women, even even though there's nothing to uh, counterweight. Uh... Well, again, I, I I just think it's poor. It's, it, I just think it's poor writing. Mm. You know, it's, it's easy to do, isn't it? I mean, um, it, it, it's a case of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. For him as a screenwriter, do you know what I mean? Like he's he's looking to. I mean, I, I do I do understand what you're saying, but I think that's quite it's quite common, isn't it? Really, yeah. Sort of, Perhaps. In, histori- historically, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting counterpoint, actually. Watch the Mi- Mission Impossible films, mm-hmm. the new ones with Tom Cruise, and watch the women characters in them. And I, I, I was saying this to someone the other day because they're always really engaging characters yeah. who actually who do stuff. Rebecca Ferguson character, in, especially, yeah. Yeah, they, they actually serve a purpose to the story, and they're actually like they're not there as romantic foils. Mm-hmm. They're as legitimate characters who do. You know, they, they 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 have a very those Mission Impossible are very good female characters. Mm. And when you go back and watch something like this, and again, it's watching it with like modern eyes, isn't it? But you know, women. What you know? Having to, I, I was watching a film the other day. And, a woman became hysterical, and I can't remember. But it's like the first thing they did was get her a sedative. It's <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Go, get put her to bed, you know. And it, it's just the, the fact. Well, it's not the fashion at the time. It's just that's how films are written. Then. Yeah. Um, and when you go back to it, you know, when you when you're watching them with modern eyes, that's why they show their age. Mm-hmm. I think so. A lot of this, these kind of things, and you sort of sit there, and you just think, oh, you know. It, and you can enjoy films like this on on that basis, but like I, it does leave that kind of residual uncomfortableness yeah. that what you sort of set again. Oh God, here we go again. Yeah. But, but there would have been no. Um, I suppose there was no impetus at the time, you know, to do anything mm. like that. And it, I, I, I mean, I'm working my way through these films of the new Hollywood movement, and they're all pretty much macho films for men. Mm. Do you know what I mean they're, they're that they're they're films for with you know you've got these unbelievable personalities like Steve McQueen and Warren Beatty and people like that, and that that was just what the thing was. They were male-dominated, male-driven films being made by men who mm. you know wanted. They were being made by directors who wanted to be the people who were starring in them, you know, and that was the type of things. And, and, and with this, yeah, it, it does fall into that trap, I suppose, or it with our modern sensibilities, we look at it and we go, mm, you know, it, 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 it's not, it's not that I find it offensive. I don't think it's just, a, I just find it a bit, it doesn't engage me. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm coming that, That's how, yeah, my overwhelming thing when yeah. I can watch stuff like this. I, I think it's, sometimes I think we place too much emphasis on applying modern day sensibilities to older films and like racial politics and sexual politics. It doesn't bother me as such. I just find it, 
I look at it from a kind of a film perspective and you know exactly how these people are going to behave based on their set, which is quite boring in and of itself. It does play with uh, that idea of uh, like sexual conventions, though, um, trying to uh, or attempting to allude to the fact that Holmes may have been uh, homosexual. There are theories about him and Watson. Um, yes. But I do. Oh, it's, def it's definitely there. There's, yeah. there's an undercurrent of it there. I mean, and it, it's always, it's, it's quite an easy, I mean, like in the Robert Downey Jr. ones, there's mm -hmm. some brilliant moments where, um, you know, they're talking about going away for a retreat and home, um, Watson's talking about bringing his fiance. And you, the look on Robert Downey Jr.'s face is brilliant. <laughs> and it, you know, it's hilarious. And you sort of think, and there is that kind of, there's always been that, you know, homoerotic relationship between them i don't know how much of that's in the original novels hmm. uh, i've not actually read that many of them but it's certainly it, you know there, there's a definite implication that there's a little bit or certainly on the point of Holmes, that he has a little bit of a thing for watson i think he, he comes across as more like asexual uh more than uh a homosexual and i don't think um, he understands women basically <laughs> he comes no. across as someone who he really doesn't understand how they how they work or how they think or that they can be as clever and sensuous and uh, exotic as uh, someone who's been to war basically um, he... like, like a watson character they they also can behave like uh, a smart human being yeah totally and it's it... The thing about yeah, the thing about Holmes is that there's no need for him. He he has no interest in women. No. The, the, he, the way the way his job is, he's just simply he's one of those people who simply has no interest at all mm. in the opposite sex. So the you know he I can imagine for that character it is quite perplexing. Like why would you want to spend an evening having a meal with someone talking nonsense? What's the joy in that when there's yeah. other things to be doing like finding out what on earth's going on with this you know dead woman's husband, you know, just all, all that kind of stuff. It's almost like a kind of a trifle, you know, why am I supposed to be interested in this? Not even, not even a girlfriend, just, just having a social life or a personal life outside yeah. of work, uh, basically. And, 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 yeah, any, any distraction yeah. is, you know, frowned upon as it were. Which is, it is an interesting trait in like the Holmes character that he's so caught up in his work. And so he's so um, clever in those uh, detective situations, but his social uh, social understanding and social needs are so alien uh, to the audience, basically. Yeah, he reminds me, I've just watched Phantom Thread, and it reminded me a little bit of the lead character in that. Mm. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis character, you know, kind of just uses women for his own need, his own gains before this, because he just doesn't have any, it's all about the work. It's about the job. It's about, you know, the next dress and all that kind of thing. And yeah, yeah. Holmes in this is very much like that. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned Christopher Lee's character. I, I found like the Mycroft character was perhaps uh, not all that, but I do find like Christopher Lee's acting in this, uh, an absolute joy to be able, I feel like he, he really revels in delivering those uh, zings to to Holmes in those moments, and he he's yeah. he's the character. I feel like he's the only one who got his wits about him, uh, and he's completely on top of things. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, as opposed to everyone else, <laughs> it's Christopher Lee yeah. as well. I mean, the guy he's amazing, and I've been watching. I've been I've got a hammer box set that I've been plowing my way through recently. Mm. He's amazing. He's, he's a screen presence, that man. Yeah, and it's the voice and it's everything and. Um, yeah, you know, Mycroft is an actual character from 
uh, RPN Doyle's novels, and we, we, we don't, this, as, as far as I'm aware, this is the first time I think we see him in, a, in, in one of the Holmes films. And yeah, who better to play the brother of Sherlock Holmes than Christopher Lee? Mm. Uh, and the audience, it would have been lost on audiences that this was Dracula. So there's that, he's got that kind of baggage coming with him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great way when you, when you have a really famous actor in a bit part, but all the kind of the baggage that they bring with them as that person, mm-hmm. from what you know, it's you, indistinguishable. For me, he's Dracula. He's this <laughs> guy. To see him in this, you'd half be expecting him to do some, like, to, you know, you're half expecting him to go into Dracula mode and he's just <laughs> living these like really snotty little lines and what a perfect perfect piece of casting that is yeah. unfortunately we, we have it now in a, in a similar way where you find major Hollywood actors tipping up in films to play the most virtuous person in them mm. like Brad Pitt in 12 Years a Slave uh, Nicole Kidman in Ryan and you just go oh do you know what just fuck off and get out of this film you're not mm. welcome it's not about you and this is a it's a case where he's been cast on who he's played in the past he's not because he's a major star mm-hmm. or it, they know it, Billy Wilder knows exactly why he's he's asking him to be in it and he knows exactly the reaction that you get out of him and you just yeah it's brilliant I love that how do you feel about like um what's in the character um I think I, I found him he was the fun character. He was the charming, affectionate character, uh, a bumbling one for sure. But he, he sort of delivers the comedic presence in the film. Um, well, that's his job, isn't it? He's a foil. Yeah. I mean, um, he, he's. But the, but the, the problem is the script doesn't serve Watson. How he's like I said, he does get the fun bit, but he doesn't get. You solve the crime gets solved with Watson's dithering normally. Yes. He'd be like, oh, this, you know, well, oh, God, you know, um, then, what is that? Yeah, and then like Watson, you know, Holmes, oh, calm down, man, you know, and then he'll give it this thing. In this as well, you know, he's firstly kind of trying to him on the straight and narrow, but yeah, he is fun. You know, Watson's great fun. He always is, and he should be great fun. Um, in this, he's kind of like the. I don't know. He's, he's the mate who taps you on the shoulder and says, "Look, just you know, keep it calm down. That's yep. all. You know, everyone kind of take it easy a little bit." And I, I, yeah, he's. The, I suppose I, I, I was more interested in Watson than I was in Holmes. Hmm. I have to say. Yeah. Um, finally, I, I think the last peop, uh, guy I want to mention is Nicholas Rocher. Uh, his score. Yeah for this film, I, th- I found it like really lush, like had this romantic feeling and fits quite well with the, with the film in my eyes. Yeah, it's, and, but it's a definitely, definitely a very 1970s score. Yeah. It's very romantic. Mm. It's, yeah, it, it is. Um, it's, yeah, it, I loved it though, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a big, you know, it's, a, it's a good score. You know, it's a big sweeping kind of, you know, Hollywood, old school Hollywood score and it, I, I you know, definitely really liked it but I do think we need to talk about the film's ending mm. because that was really hit me off guard um, when obviously he finds out what's happened and 
just sort of you just sort of see him skulking off to his room to get high, and uh, yeah, it it hit me. I have to be honest, it, it did. Okay, I, I I mean, by the time I I reached the ending, um, I mean I I do enjoy Wilder's take on Holmes as this more tragic figure in the beginning and lamenting over. Is it love lost? He's lamenting. We don't quite know, but um, I feel it kind of gets lost in shuffle. And by the time we return to it, um, the toll of the toll of the uh, the downplayed mystery and the the unexcitement of it all, um, him resorting back to uh, addiction or depression, uh, mm. this attempt at sort of humanizing the character it really didn't capture the same interest to me in 2017 or 18 as it would in 1970 i suppose but uh, for me it felt sort of tacked on um like i was saying earlier that uh, these scenes sort of bookend the film but i don't feel they really comment on what has happened in the film to a degree, yeah, I, I kind of liked it because it was, I, I, I liked it because it didn't give you the the big mm. happy send off, and that's yeah. what I mean by a product of its time. It, it's the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It they die at the end of that film. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that then they're not going anywhere. They're dead. Mm-hmm. And this with that, you know, when he gets the the, the consequences of what's happened suddenly dawn on him, and just to see him like, go yeah. off like that, yeah. Yeah, it, I, I found it quite affecting to be brutally honest with you. It kind of made up to a degree, like you said, I think for the slight disappointment I had with the fact I wanted to be trying to solve this film and mm-hmm. go along with it, and that wasn't happening. But I found when when, when that happened, it, it kind of like it kind of jolted me out of it a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. oh shit, this is this is a Sherlock Holmes film. It's all meant to be fun and fiction, and it's suddenly like, right, this is you know, here we go. You know, he's going back to. Or drown out the pain, as it were, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it hurt. I it, it, it worked for me anyway. I was definitely very affected by it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like what Wilder was going for in that the tone and the character development and like the ambition of what he's trying to do is uh, above and beyond what most Sherlock movies try to do. I feel um, the problem, as we've been talking about, for me uh, is that it just feels a little bit too disjointed, uh, and perhaps mm. that is because it was cut down, cut to shreds uh, uh, before he was uh, before it was released. I would be interested to see, like, um, what was this film as a complete film? Uh, would it yeah, would have sure. would have been more like epic, or would it have been more elegant? Would it would the pieces fit more? Uh, logically together I don't know but it, it would be an interesting I'm sad to see that uh, those cut scenes aren't included in this release uh. mm. yeah for sure no it's it's, a, it's an oddity this yeah. one it's a really strange film um, it it's I, I, I can't say I'm not really seeing, I'm not seeing a Holmes film like it mm-hmm. um, does it work entirely I'm not in, you know, I'm not so sure really is it interesting? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a Billy Wilder film, you know. And yeah, I'm always interested when you watch a director's body of work, mm. and sometimes you can see them. You know, this is a this is a director who's made this film, and it's the end of his career. Mm. He's come. He's, he's he's reaching that point, and from a sort of a film history perspective, it's interest. It, it, it fascinates me to see 
people doing that. Like Steven Spielberg at the moment is going through another phase of his career where he's making sort of more serious political films. Mm -hmm. Um, He's got a kind of ready player one kind, but you can see him changing as time goes on with his audiences. Um, And I think from the perspective of Billy Wilder's career, it's fun to see the end product is you get experiments with established characters and genres that manifest themselves in this way. And for that, for, for that reason, I think it is a very interesting film. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you mentioning Spielberg now, I mean, uh, just maybe think like he's been doing films for 50 years. We're going to lose them soon, I think. Uh, what a loss that will be to the film community. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that phase. Yeah, you know, it's, that's not happening. Where these guys who we've grown up with are going to go, and uh, yeah, I mean, what Spielberg, seventy-one years old now, I think seventy-seven. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah it's going to happen. And uh, yeah, you know, age is going to catch up. You know, and we'll be like shit. And uh, you know, it, it's these old, old. I mean, and who are we going to have to replace Michael Bay? Yes, we do, yeah. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy Phantom Fred. But yeah, it's it's a strange uh it's a stranger world and to see I think for people like working today, mm. I don't think it's as hard now to change as it would be then. I think I, I think Billy Wilder would have started off in a Hollywood that was titanically different within 10 years. I mean, like everything, every single aspect of the industry would have changed massively over the course of his career. Mm-hmm. I, that's not the case now. And the biggest change we'll have now is like going to Netflix. Yeah. It's going to happen. You know, people are going to kind of like, you know, you'll have some passion project that you want to make. You can't get filming. Netflix say, well, we, you know, make it on us. You know, that, that, that's the shift that's going to happen now. But it won't be as titanic. I mean, Billy Wilder, when he started making films, it would have been within the studio system. You've gone through, you've made films within that system. You've made quite subversive films. And then to get to that phase where you're making films like this in that time, that is a huge shift mm-hmm. in everything, basically. And, I, I, it's, that, that, and the result is what you get with The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And it is um, like um, you have to give credit to Wilder to get a film like this uh, out, uh, basically. So, uh, I mean, mean, he he really did have to sell this film to uh, be able to release such a story. Oh, gotcha. I mean, again, this film had a massive budget. Mm. Don't forget, James Bond's around at this time as well. You know, (laughs) I mean, mean, this is, uh, isn't this Thunderball, uh, between Thunderball and... um, uh, in Japan, uh, you only die twice. I think it was. So it, James yeah. Bond is at his hype, basically. Yeah, and, and you know, again, you know, James Bond, you, and then you, you chuck this out there. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting experiment. Mm, indeed. Uh, all right, so we can start uh, wrapping things up. Uh, I think uh, the final thing, the final comment I had about uh, the Master of Cinema release um, is that the transfer looked, it was a bit too faded. Uh, and looks. I mean, that's just how it's been filmed. It's a very, very soft. Yeah. Very, very soft film. Um, as, as was the style at the time. I, 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 you can almost. I, I would be surprised if they put like Vaseline over the camera lens to sort of, you know, take take that's some of the saturation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I was quite impressed with the with the transfer. This definitely sounded amazing. I think mm. it was cool. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, did you watch any of the uh, like um, extra materials? The uh... no, I didn't actually. No. I think the uh, Neil Sinyard interview is quite um, an informing one, uh, where he looks back at uh, the film's making and uh, yeah. Uh, there was also an interview with Christopher Lee, I think, but um, I didn't listen to all of it. Uh, it was more of his musings uh, on yeah. being on the film and his career and stuff. So yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, wrapping things up, what's going on with the twenty-four frames cast then? I have my review of 2017 coming out um, very, very shortly, um, which will be mainly talking about the state of film criticism in 2017, which I think has reached um, depths of crapness <laughs> um, that I didn't think were quite imaginable. So, uh, yeah, I'll be talking about that. Nice. Um, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitter at 24framescast. You can find me on Facebook. I'm the Tom Jennings with looking down at the Giants Causeway. And you can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. Excellent. Uh, you can find us at moccast.blogspot.com and also on criteriancast.com. Uh, find us on your favorite podcast player or on Twitter at moc underscore cast. Or just search for masters of cinema cast in your social media and i'm sure will pop up so yeah don't forget to leave reviews as well yes indeed on itunes please yes that does help us immensely indeed so uh, thank you for joining me today tom and thank you listener for tuning in and we'll catch you next time